It was a time of optimism. Its promoters called it the Enlightenment, the age of reason. In the decades before the American Revolution, Europeans and their diaspora in the colonies witnessed many intellectual breakthroughs, just to name a few. In that other Cambridge, Isaac Newton developed the mathematical principle of mass and uh, gravity, giving us an understanding of the orbits of heavenly bodies and demystifying the characteristics of objects in motion, why they would move in elliptical orbits. Priestley isolated the element of oxygen, identifying the life-giving element in the atmosphere. And 25 years before the American Revolution, the printer Benjamin Franklin developed the hypothesis that electrical sparks experienced in static discharges were the same as the brilliant flashes in the sky we call lightning, and tested his notion by capturing some sparks in a thunderstorm. All these and many more experiments and anomalies were solved, theories were advanced, it was an intellectual breakthrough and it was exciting. And on top of centuries of so-called discoveries that informed what we now call the life sciences, new lands had been mapped by European map makers. New species that Europeans found exotic were captured and brought back to the homeland to be observed in laboratories and zoological gardens. And non-European peoples were also encountered. And their cultural differences were noted and too often they too were captured and brought back to be studied and explained. It was a time of optimism. And that optimism was powered by new knowledge, the thrill of discovery, and men of wealth read new books and were excited. And the gentlemen brought, bought their own telescopes, their own maps, their microscopes. They brought they even bought the parts and they began to manufacture their own batteries and they carried out all kinds of experiments. And if nature could be understood, if nature could be explained, if nature could be conquered, then why shouldn't human society? The Enlightenment included the search for an improved constitution. Governments, governments would no longer be based on tradition, on theological rationale, but reason on self-evident truths. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was a time of optimism. And the idea that we now call progress was born. Somehow, some way, human beings would figure it all out. And based on more and more science and more and more technology and more and more rationality applied to social institutions, human beings would become prosperous and the blights of illness, poverty, and war would become relics of the past. The new knowledge meant new institutions, new institutions, since the very first decades of our existence as the first parish in Cambridge, we have shared neighborhood with the institution across the street. For the first century and a half, Harvard was basically an academy. College, a college, and in those days a college was sort of like a Latin school. 
teaching classics, history of reading. Uh, history was taught by reading all kinds of Roman historians and Greek historians. Math, math you learned by reading classics like Euclid. If the, the students were teenagers, reaching their bachelor's degree by 19. But this new knowledge gave birth to new specializations. The medical school was born, the divinity school was born, the law school was born, and soon enough departments for the earth sciences and math and biological science, and they'd even split the, the uh, life science into zoology and botany, and so on and so on. By the beginning of the 20th century, Harvard was one of many universities and no longer nurturers of the classics and ancient wisdom, but themselves generators of new knowledge, a powerhouse of the new faith in progress. The age of reason, the Enlightenment, became institutionalized. It was no longer the hobby of wealthy Europeans and their cousins in the colonies. And along the way, something has been lost. Something has been lost. The optimism. The optimism. The hope. The confidence that humans can and even should master the universe. As we fly across the sky, applying all kinds of sciences, not only aerodynamics and meteorology, but computerized guidance systems and satellite-aided communications. And for those of us who fly often, thank goodness, we can also see the haze. The red glow of hydrocarbon fills clouds over our major cities. The polluted rivers, the eroded hillsides are all, all too evident. We are not the first generation to notice that something is wrong with our relationship with our environment, with our Earth herself, in whom we live and move and have our being, and with whom we have emerged and by whom we are sustained. People have protested the poisons, the smoke, the greenhouse gases, the soil contaminants for more than two centuries. And we are aware, we are aware of the assaults on our health, lead in the water, toxins in our food, and the so-called side effects from medicines meant to heal us. Technology has not met the promise of prosperity. And steady progress onward and onward forever is not something we, any, we used to have that kind of thing right up on the church walls, onward and upward forever. I was... I'm young enough to remember that was a Unitarian slogan, onward and upward forever, the progress of humankind. In the century in which most of us were born, most of the breakthroughs in science and technology were made in preparation for war. Instead of the optimism of the Enlightenment, we are now here prophecies of doom mostly so much doom that one almost has to have talks about how one engages in spiritual life at the end of time. The Enlightenment was a time of new light, of new science, new confidence in the capacity of human beings to know all that there is to know, 
to envision an ideal society, a balance of powers, a more perfect union. It was also a time of genocide. Africa and the Americas. It was not coincidental that the Enlightenment was the moment in history that saw the articulation of what we now call racism. Let me be clear. For millennia, human beings have had negative views of other tribes and nations. The word Cherokee is a Choctaw word for people who live in caves. That was a put down sort of like saying hillbillies. And the word Iroquois means snakes in Micmac. And calling a people snakes was not a compliment. That the European explorer picked these words up and put them on the maps and the books means we still have them and Cherokees have to get used to being cave people. But racism was different than just bad feelings and bad names thrown at other people. It was a rationalization, a masquerading as science. Science, as the 18th century understood that term. When we use the word racism, we are describing a deeply rationalized worldview that, you, that Europe and European peoples and culture are the norm, and an in institutionalization of that racism it, it, into the relationships of power. The European scholar asked, what accounted for the way of life of the American Indian, who, after all, did things differently than the English? But at first they explained it with theology. Theology was the tool they had when they came in 1620, 1630, even 1491. Theology explained what was wrong with the Indian. They were the people of the devil. They were different because the devil had possessed them. And therefore, their democracy, the way they treated each other, their matrilineal social structure, their sustainable relationship to the environment were all products of not having the right uh, transcendent God. They were satanic. But by the time of Thomas Jefferson, people had discarded such theological explanations. And the gentlemen of the Enlightenment, the idea of race, as biology was emerging. These gentlemen asserted that based on observation, white people were rational and industrious, biologically more fit for civilization. But they observed the Native Americans were wild and played games all day, therefore biologically unfit for a work, world of work and achievement and factories. Behold, the white settlers cleared the trees and put up fences and improved the land while the American Indians removed the underbrush with controlled fire and cultivated berries, planted corn and squash and beans and small scattered plots. To Jefferson and his friends, this meant that the land was left wild and not improved. And they didn't do anything with the land. It was just a forest, a wilderness. It was argued that due to, this was all due to the American Indian's biological nature. Now, similar arguments were based on biological differences were marshaled to explain the cultural differences with the European world with the people of Africa, 
and the people of China and the people of Asia. Scientists brought all kinds of bones of conquered people back to the museum, specimens, and in order that their peculiarities could be studied. The differences in cultures, it was argued, could be found in the tiny, tiny differences in the shape of the skull. If you could get that skull really examined, you could figure out what made an Australian indigenous person tick. Now, this shows clear that the answers given by any science, anytime you're saying we're a science, depend on the assumptions that guide the inquiry. And if your assumptions are basically based on power, you're going to come up with a science that rationalizes your power. Now, some of us might argue that science of race, the anthropology of a century ago, was not a science at all. It was a pseudoscience. But my friends, it was marketed as science. It was regarded as science. It was institutionalized as science. It was taught across the street as science. And the Peabody still has the bones. And the spirit of the way we, we call science still lives. This way of being science still lives in our institutions. A recent news story illustrates this for me. Apparently, all the different peoples of this planet, all the peoples of this planet, have not yet been inducted into the controlled global village. They're not all... We still have people out there in this planet who haven't been found. Two anthropologists, Kim Hill from the University of Arizona and Robert Walker from the University of Missouri, want to make a concerted effort to contact the remaining uncontacted people. There are about 10 different community in Brazil's Amazon, the world's largest rainforest. And they have never met an anthropologist. <laughs> Alas, nobody for the first world has studied them. In a statement, Hill and Wagner, well, Hill and Walker argue, contacting them almost always leads to increased, not decreased political protection, because they get incorporated formally into government protections and land titling processes. It's important to have your land titled. They argue allowing their culture to be studied, therefore, and preserved in learning journals and libraries will be a way of preserving that culture. They also argue that children of these people need to be inoculated for their own good, and their language needs to be recorded. However, this scheme has been denounced by an organization called Survival International, which has long campaigned for the right of not uncontacted people to be left alone. Survival International argues Walker and Hill play straight into the hands of those who want to open the Amazon for resource extraction and investment. Their claim that this tribe's own benefit is dangerous and misleading nonsense, they argue. Right now, in Brazil, all of the indigenous people of the Amazon, the many, many, many communities of the Amazon that have 
had the benefit of being contacted, have been studied, and have been given their shots, all of them, view the proposal to contact the uncontacted as colonial arrogance. They have vowed, all of the indigenous people of the Amazon have vowed that they will unite with the uncontacted ones with thousands of diversions, such as setting up hundreds of encampments with cooking fires, making the search for the peoples that the universities do not know very difficult. Pressure is mounting on Brazil's government to co sanction contact in the international agencies, but the domestic op opinion in Brazil strongly favors leaving the undiscovered undiscovered. I think this little story illustrates the shadow side of the Enlightenment. It helps us to understand why we need to re-examine its assumptions. Such a re-examination does not involve going back to a pre-scientific worldview. Inquiry and the desire to understand are not the culprits. Rather, my critique involves around two aspects of the worldview of the Enlightenment. In our seventh principle, we speak of the interconnected web of all existence. And one of the weaknesses of the Enlightenment was to see phenomenon in isolation. Breaking complexity down can be helpful. If you're ever writing a paper, try breaking down the problem. But, if, but we were also recognized that sometimes breaking down a phenomenon can destroy the phenomenon in the process. Sometimes phenomenon just can't be understood except in their relationship to their surroundings. And perhaps the essence of an uncontacted people is precisely the relationship to their surroundings, their unique culture and history. Forcefully contacting these peoples would destroy that characteristic, those characteristics. And they would never be the same. We would disrupt one of the most important aspects of their interconnection and substitute another, the colonized connection. The other characteristic of the Enlightenment worldview that I consider problematic is the assumption of control. Control. In relationship to the earth, the notion that we can control the world means that we can tear down the mountains for the coal that is deep inside the earth, means that we can pour carbon pollutants into the hemisphere and energi to energize our economy, and we can process chemicals and call it food and sell it in the supermarket. And many of us in First Parish realize that our attitude toward creation is at the root of the crisis we call climate change and all the other crises of relationship to this, our Earth. But I have indicated also that modern racism rose in the time of reason. It too is a legacy of the Enlightenment. And observe, control is central. Control is central to how race is lived out in practice. The elite assume the right to control nature. And they assume the right to control the peoples of this earth. 
And the peoples of Africa, the peoples of Americas, the peoples of Australia, New Zealand, and all of Asia, and the islands of the Pacific were discovered, were studied, were controlled, and were given new kinds of government. Now today, we are joined these efforts to become an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, and multicultural congregation. And this afternoon, we will have a discussion, a congregational discussion of our work. And we are joining in a worldwide effort, therefore, to re-envision, re-envision our own worldview. And yes, yes, we need enlightenment thinking, but a new enlightenment, a new enlightenment that respects knowledge, a new knowledge that rises out of relationship and respect for the earth, a knowledge that rises out of respect for people and each other. Let us, our inquiries, be based on appreciative inquiry that embraces freedom and empowerment for all, not simply the freedom of elites to implement their projects or an empowerment of the well passion to control others. Sometimes the power of institutions is com that is committed to the old paradigm, the power of institutions seems so powerful, so stubborn in its resistance, and change seems so incremental, seems so overwhelming, that to speak of an emerging worldview based on interconnection, democracy, equity, inclusion, seems just like a preacher preaching just a talk, the kind of talk that preachers do. Nice sentiment, wishful thinking. But let me observe, the only constant in history is change. The only thing that is constant in history is change. And the change we get is the change that together we practice. And at First Parish, we seek to practice, to practice what we hope for, finding new ways to relate to each other, what we seek and what we strive together to be.